very different to be together after the pandemic has affected our love than before. Right. So. Well, what I'd like us to do this weekend um, is to range over about eight different subjects that I feel would be helpful from where I sit in my awareness or understanding and also in my humility of being a human being. And <clears throat> each one will just have a slightly different mood, but you know, I'll kind of go from one into the next. But I think that <clears throat> I want to begin with something very deep that has to do with women and men and what it is to be a human being. So when we study religion, we tend to study theology. And we've developed this propensity in the modern world to say, I'm here, I'm aware, I'm intelligent, Oops. I'm intelligent. I, I know what, what I think. And then we, we bring that in against another idea. And we think, well, that's life. But it isn't, it's actually thought. And so <clears throat> when we work with tribal peoples, they don't tend to value that particularly. It's interesting to them. And they know that they have to send their children to school to translate into the modern global world. But it doesn't teach a child what to do when it's very, very cold or very, very hot, or the fields are dying, or the seed failed, or the water is not safe to drink, right? So the tribal elder <clears throat> passes on a dimension of history so that life can be remembered. Life can be remembered. Therefore, love can be embodied, and therefore the future blossoms like Amy's garden, right? And then there's this ecstatic contentment and the mind is quite quiet. The mind becomes our friend, as it did to the Buddha, right? So people will study meditation and tell me, I just can't get my mind to behave. It just won't be quiet. I just keep telling it, will you just shut up, will you stop? And I go, well, it's, it's trying to be your friend. Why don't you welcome it and say, please be my friend. Okay, so the, the clear mind would be, it tends to be in the front of the head, like we're looking through a window. And it is ascertaining, is it so cold that we need Joseph's jacket? Or warm enough that we are all right without it? Or put it over our lap or lend it to the baby? Or we sit more out in the sun or away? The mind is like the directional gauge for the past, present, and future. It's transcendent. It's clear. It's undisturbed. <clears throat> but what we usually do is we disturb it to try to figure out the next moment with the mind, but it doesn't know the direction of the future. You can't get there from your thinking. Right? The next moment, the thought is different. Because it's tracking time. It doesn't define time and has no authority over time. So the tribal person 
reads their stories through the seasons of their history, life, and their aspirations for a future that goes beyond them in their children, their grandchildren, their spouses, the trees, their neighbors. And then there's this love embodied, and that's what it is to be a human. I mean, that's one, I'm being simplistic, but that's part of what it is to be a human. So when we come in with a very sophisticated Western viewpoint of what do you think, what do you do? Where'd you go to school? How many degrees do you have? How much do you make? You know, what do you own? That starts to become a kind of armoring of the mind against the next season that's arising. We might think, if I have enough power, I could own all the lakes of the world. I go, well, then what would you do to care for the water? So we, we, we miss the point. So <clears throat> there's a quality of something happening, and I, I want us to begin with a certain calling forward of a blessing from our history. In the women of our history, there would be the knowledge, darling, I'm pregnant. We're pregnant. Or we can't conceive. I'm not able to have a child. What shall we do? And the masculine Y chromosome does not come out as a weapon. It comes out beside what has been revealed in time through the feminine. And they meet. And the next moment in time of the civilization is born. Right? It happens among us, between us. It doesn't just happen in an individual mind. So when we study a great being like the Buddha or Jesus or Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him, or uh, Guru Nanak or Daganawita, the great peacemaker of the Iroquois Confederacy, or Haudenosaunee people, Haudenosaunee people, we are studying them, but we often make it a theology. This is what we should believe. And then if you don't believe what I believe, we're not going to meet, I'm going to fight you until one of us dominates the other and proves that whoever I'm historically studying knew more than whoever you're historically studying. And then we meet the next moment and it isn't revealed to us who we are and what to do. It might be in the solitude of our practice or in our devotion or in our service, but in the idea of what we're seeking so that we live the next moment and don't die or we cherish our life or our loved ones. We are in a place where we're, we're arguing. It's a warfare. It's a, it's a dissonance. Okay, So the whole human race right now, across the whole planet, is in the same classroom. Who would ever think that that could happen? How did it happen? Through a little creature that doesn't have a nucleus, so we're its nucleus, the human race. It's living all around us and through us and among us. And the press has been discordant in its presentation of how to behave as human beings. Because a journalist will receive a greater readership if they disturb us enough to look at what the article they've written will say. If they write a relatively harmonious article, most of us won't read it, and they won't get hired to write the next article. See, it's the irritation of the mind. So we go, where do we go? What do we do? Is it going to kill somebody, not kill somebody? What's the level of the illness? What's the newest variant of what's occurring? How shall I flee from it? Where shall I go? So if the nucleus is the human race, 
And to me, there's something going on globally. So I want us to begin with a certain call to blessing and then range out into about six or seven or eight areas around that. But the first of the eight is this idea that comes from our history in the women and men. So what I'm going to refer to is going back into the Bible and the New Testament in the sayings of John or the writings of John the Apostle. We know he lived to be 97. He died in Ephesus. I've been at his grave. His companion of many years, a man who, who was the scribe for the Gospel of John in the book of Revelations, is buried beside him. It used to be a relatively small village. It's become uh, much more populous in recent years with a lot of travelers coming through. And it's a beautiful climate. It has people from around Turkey moving there to retire and live. So there lies the body of John, the remains, that went down into the earth. So he was born at some point through his mother and father, and then rose up to study a great deal, and then became very close to the being Jesus. How we speak of him and his personality is, he is the one whom Jesus loved. Isn't that interesting? Some meeting between them. It's a very unusual phrase in a traditional religious book, the one whom Jesus loved. And then he never left him. So while everyone else fled the crucifixion, for whatever reasons, John did not. He stayed there. And then <clears throat> Jesus said to him, Son, behold thy mother. Mother or woman, behold thy son. And placed the transmission or state between himself and his mother Mary in the hands of John. And shortly after he died. This relationship was never broken. Mother, son, friend, story. 2,000 years have passed. We can't break the story. Something happened among them that has to do with eternity, time, time of heaven. So when we ask the question, what are we doing of heaven on earth? It will always be answered, and it becomes a slightly ecstatic, grace-filled experience. And then we know what to do. And our mind can be our friend, and we can make the best discerning decision. Well, let's try this seed in the field. Someone else might go, will it work? I don't know, but we'll try. I don't know, but my grandfather taught me to do this when there was not enough water. We don't know, but we'll ask this other tribal group, what crop are you planting this spring? Okay, and then we go from the past to the present to the future in a grace-filled state where we are willing to be who we really are, and we are vulnerable to one another, and there's no mask present. There's a state that's very innocent and very pure, and each one of us is an individual, and yet we are something as humanity. And so when we work with great beings like the Buddha or Jesus or Mary or Yasodhara, the Buddha's wife, and, and I'm not including many religions, but if we take any tradition in the world, there will be a man and a woman, or many, who tell a story where the point is what's between them in time and is realized. 
And then when the story is told, we generally go to the mind. What's the theology? How can I grasp that? But we can't find it that way. We find it through the, the yoking, the yoga between them of that unified field. That's available to every single being. The ladybug, the, the, the flowers growing, the trees. Right? So <clears throat> we tend as human beings to say, but I want to be more than those. Or I want to be more than that other person. Or we enter a moment and when we are open, the next human being is frightened of the vulnerability, so they say something to close us down. They mask the situation from that transcendent state. And our heart is hurt, and we don't quite know what to do next. We can be sincere and keep awakening, or we can say, I can't handle how vulnerable I am. It's just too hard. And we try to develop our own mind or our mental capacities and our strength of personality and our resources of life to cope with the brutality of how unkind we are to each other. And it's because we're frightened, but it's also because we turn too often to power and greed instead of to why we're actually here, which is not really that difficult. Right. So if we go to this, uh, this being John, he was known for his wisdom. He was the eldest of the apostles by a great deal, so they turned to him more as an elder. But the interesting point of what he never turned away from, <clears throat> and then dictated when this young man wrote it down, in, his, in the second book of John, he tells the story of Mary <clears throat> attending a wedding. And modern scholars have gone uh, into their next excitement about what it might be. A lot of them think it was actually Jesus' wedding. This has become, in maybe the last 30 years of scholarship, this study, scholars will say, do you think it was the wedding of Jesus? I don't know if there's any documentation that shows that it was, but it's, it's part of like scholarly conversation. So it will be discussed, was it his wedding? Was he married to Magdalene? Was it someone else? Was it their wedding? Is that why Mary would have said to the servants, because the word servant is used, to do whatever he tells you to do? They bring out six big stone jars of water because there's no more wine. So scholars will say, well, no woman would have taken the authority in that time to tell anyone what to do unless it was a wedding in her own family. But if she had other children, maybe it wasn't Jesus. And then a scholar will go, she didn't have other children. And another will go, we know she had other children. And then they start arguing. <laughs> and then one writes a paper about the wedding feast and, you know, what was actually going on at the, at the wedding feast. And they're trying to understand mentally, how do we find the answer? So the only people who saw that it was water and not wine were the servants. No one else ever saw that. They, they were the ones who gathered the water and knew that it was water. And then there's a very short statement. Mary says, and I looked at it in several languages before the class. She, she says, whatever he says to you, or whatever he says to you, do that. Whatever he is and states to you, embody that, do that, whatever he asks of you. So we don't really know what he asked. Did he ask to bring the six stars or were they just there and he walked out to them? How he answered his mother was, woman, it is not yet my time. She didn't answer him. 
she called forward something present she understood you feel that that movement of it's like you're like what is this energy something happened in her that knew in eternity through a child born through her body son now and then a miracle happened at least historically that's what we're told somehow water became wine and Christians will say, well, Jesus did this. What did he do? I want him to do that to me. I want to become the wine of the Christ, or the wine of Muhammad, or the wine of Moses, or the wine of Mount Sinai, or the, Mount, the wine of, you know, uh, the fields where the Buddha walked in the deer park at Sarnath. I want that. I, I, that's what I want. But we don't know what happened there. And when we're with it, we can feel it. We, we can all feel it. There's no fighting. So a mother called forward now. Whatever he says, do this. And so in reading it, you realize, okay, there's being. Whenever you study a language, you're studying being and then acting. All the verbs are... so. There's something that is in existence, and then there's the action of life. She sets a direction toward the future through her son. Now, him. And here we are. So why I begin with this is I'm aware that our earth is calling to humanity a different attention than we've been paying. And... I think that the movement of uh, power, I'll use the words power and greed again, is, is distantly out of balance in how young people are learning what they must be to armor themselves. And if we were steering a great ship, we would be headed to a rocky shore. So much of the last few years for people who are quite conscious has been contemplative, and yet difficult. Why? Because you're not steering the ship to the shore that's rocky. You're trying to help young people go in the way I'm speaking to a life that has balance and purpose and dignity and humility and, re and reality. And a lot of people are not listening. So I think from where we sit this morning, I am saying, now and calling on not myself although I'm fully responsible for for calling it if anyone in the world asked me did you say that I'd say yes I said exactly what Jesus mother said and I'm asking that now we do what he says because that soul is on the earth he's going to be 13 at the end of the summer will he ever be publicly known we don't know. But there's no reason why whatever force happened that turned the water to wine isn't ready to be active now. It never went away. We just weren't studying that. Our attention was, you know, will a miracle happen to me? Will Jesus save me? Will the Buddha save me? You know. 
does Muhammad love the Sunni or the Shiite? I mean, I was thinking the other day, if one descendant is the grandson and one is the nephew or great-nephew, isn't this a family? What's wrong with us? I was upset about it. I thought, this is the stupidest thing in the world, you know? Here's the, here is the entire planet of great beauty, and we still have factions killing each other. In any religion, it's just ridiculous. I'll tear your temple down. I go, well, definitely you did not understand what happened through Muhammad. Peace and mercy be upon him. And I would like to understand it and sit beside him. So he's another of the children who's here now in his young adulthood. So, you know, whether people believe in reincarnation or not, for me, I'm one person. I'm almost 70, which is not that old. But the ease and difficulty for my body to live through the storms of humanity is quite difficult. Not internally, but the grace-filled expression through Mary, because that's how she's historically spoken of, never went away. We just weren't giving our attention to that. So I thought, well, we'll begin with giving our attention to calling that forward. And then through her, through the being Jesus, and through every child who's been born, we're calling the same alignment possible in heaven, in whatever we call God, through each child. And then, together, they are a holy family that is humanity. And each one has gifts in their cells that comprise the X chromosome calling forward the protection and shepherding of the Y chromosome beyond warfare. It's not that difficult. And from my state I live in, this is what's happening in the world now. And I felt it needs the initiation or the transmission of that feminine principle. And I thought the last year, so who's going to do that? So when we prepared for the class, I was aware, well, if I do this in the name of all the great women of our ancestry, names known and unknown, through all the world's cultures, traditions, religions, then all of these ancient and modern mothers of ours are allowed to call forward the water and the vessels holding it, and that which is of heaven through their sons and daughters to be answered. It's not done to the mother, not done to the father, it was done through their child. Whatever he tells you to do, whatever he says, she doesn't say, tells you to do, whatever he says, whatever he states, enact, whatever he names, do. Whatever he is and states with his breath, embody, right? So if you love language, it, it's not so much about do what he says. It's more like a child copying the father cutting wood, or planting a seed. See, grandson, like this. You listen to the grandfather's voice, you take the seed and the little spade, and you enact that. It's a, the gesture of the human being. So as that occurred, we have a miracle. That's what we call it, a miracle. 
But something happened in the last moment where we each took a breath, and that's a miracle too. And the trees remained, and that's a miracle too. So whatever Jesus was embodying, and whatever his mother was calling forward, it's time. I feel it's that time on the earth. And that with all these children here, there are about four, maybe 4,200, 4,600 of them, who appear to be reincarnations of all these saints and sages of history, it's time. What will happen through them and among them now? So we have the capacity as a human race to embody living with the purpose for which we were really created. And then there's a quality that is sort of without a mask. We show ourselves and we are very vulnerable, but we're very real. And we reach a stage where it's not worth putting the mask on. And I'm not trying to tell people they shouldn't wear masks if they're out in public. Or, but I mean the, the literal sense of, do I know who I am? Do I not know who I am? That, that experience. So I'll change gears and go to Plato, who predates Jesus by about 400 years. And he became very disturbed by what he watched in society. He was a student of Socrates. And he would watch mankind defend itself mentally. And it upset him because he was trying to study a greater wisdom. And so one of his most beloved writings is in something called The Republic. And he writes about a cave. And in the cave, there are all of these human beings, and they're chained, they're tied, and they're facing the back wall. And they think that they're tremendously profound, but they're looking at the shadow of the fire. So they, they think that they're seeing the reality of everything, but they're not. Well, they are, in them, they are in their viewpoint. So what if one person is able to get out of the chains? If so the people will probably turn on him or her. It's a man in this case. If the man is able to crawl out of the cave to the open, and he's blinded because he turns and sees the fire instead of the shadows, can hardly bear it. And then he climbs out of the cave, but the people will probably kill him when he does that, because, but they can't because they're in their chains. <clears throat> but their hatred for what he's doing that's not real is so upsetting to them because he's going against their theology. And then he climbs out into the daylight and is stunned by the sunlight. And then until he can look directly at the sun and just regard the sun undisturbed, he's, he hasn't let go of the mask. But when he can stand and, and gaze at the sun briefly and be fully there, he is in a certain state of understanding that he does not have that that mask anymore. Right? So that, that's what's happening to the human beings now. And we are at a critical mass where we don't need the cave or the harm to one another. Enough people have struggled through that. And then the man does something like I do. I have to go back in the cave after everybody. Not to come with me, but to say, why don't you get up and find the place in which you're going to build your own garage or the dream of your sailboat or calling your brother you haven't talked to. Oh, my brother's difficult. I go, I know. Well, so are you. No, I'm not. He's the one who started the fight. I go, well, you're like John Adams and 
Thomas Jefferson, they didn't talk for years. Right? And then Adams was asked by a friend, you, you have to contact him. Jefferson is too vain. He can't do it. But you have the capacity. And Adams had recently lost his wife, Abigail. It was quite unbearable to him. And out of the old friendship, and Jefferson had been brutal toward him, just very, very uh, unkind, very sophisticatedly cruel, uh, which is very present in our society today. So Adams wrote about the loss of Abigail, a brief letter, and Jefferson answered it. And they began this reciprocity again, even after the heartbreak and the intentional harm. Adams had the humility and the understanding to come back around and enter the relationship. Remarkable. But if they hadn't spoken again, would our country still be unified? Would it not be? So what happens in our history is we form places that allow aspiration, and we often study that which stops the aspiration. We, we study the map of what's not safe. It wouldn't be safe if you did this. And it would be really bad if you did this. And this is what happened to this country when they did this. We don't study, this is the way to climb Mount Blanc. When you get there, there will be the most amazing Jakari wine down at one of the villages at the base. Millions of people have walked through that area since there were human beings. Isn't that amazing? I, I've never known a high school student who learned that in a history lesson. But if we did, how would people fight wars over the jewelry and silver and possessions of the houses in those villages during World Wars I and II? They go, I, I, what are you talking about that I'd go attack the, my friends on Mont Blanc? And it would belong to this country versus this country. And we'd kill all the people in that village because they were the wrong social group. They were of Czech descent versus Alsatian descent, right? So I come, one quarter of my family comes from a group where if wars went a certain way, they'd be killed because they were Alsatian. They weren't German, they weren't Swiss, they weren't French, they weren't Belgian, right? You know, it's like, who, who are you? Are you the wrong tribe? Let's kill you. I go, why, why do we do that to each other? instead of studying how do the Alsatians know what to plant in a season of famine, right? And then the Belgians, how did they know what to plant in the lower fields further down the mountains, closer to the coast? So we've told a great deal of our history based on the argument rather than the realization or the fulfillment. So if we start with this presentation from Mary, the second thing that happens in that particular chapter, which is quite short of John, is Jesus then goes, not the same day, but a different day, he goes into the temple, walks up along the gates to the temple in Jerusalem, and all of these tables are set up for trading money. And he knocks them down. That's the next thing that happens. So we go, the wedding of Cana, the knocking down of the tables. You go, what was he doing? And then people get very righteous about what they believe about either principle. But all I'm trying to say is something happened through him of trying to write an alignment. How do we deal with money and possessions? How do we deal with the temple? 
How do we deal with one's mother? How do we deal with a celebration like a wedding? So there's a doorway for humanity now, which is beyond all the wars. There are small wars, but there's not a great world war right now. And I think a lot of the recent years have been in the wisdom of the human beings on the earth to move forward avoiding a war. So the war is being fought right now through power and greed, not through weapons and sort of, you know, you don't have anything and I have everything. Or we're, we're, we're using our aggression to work it out through the material plane. And it's just, it'll take us time and homework to do that, but we didn't fall into the chaos of one nation trying to totally annihilate another on a military level and then have to build it back up again. We, d we didn't go in that way. We've never done that before. So we're left now with a pandemic where this lesson from Plato about living coming out of the cave is very present. So how, how does one do that? Well, when you come forward <clears throat> into a situation, you have another principle we don't pay attention to, and this is the second point I'd like us to make. So we have this calling forward of whatever it is Mary was asking. That's not dissimilar to how Yasodhara practiced with the Buddhist son. Your father is doing this. We're going to follow what he is doing. It's not dissimilar to um, women from the Old Testament. It's not Ruth and Naomi traveling together as a mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. So there's a meeting between people that occurs where that, that miraculous quality or that life itself is present. And part of why we don't study it is we don't find comfort with time. We find comfort with space. This is my table, you know, my bench. This is mine. This is yours. I want it. You can't have it. Here you can have this. So most of our warfare is about the material plane and identifying a great deal with space. I think because our bodies live and die and we grasp onto the space of our body, like, I want to live forever. This space, I want to occupy it. You know, I'm here. I'm not going to let anybody take that away from me. I think we become identified with the aspect of ourselves that's born and will die. And we become frightened like a child with night terror. And we go, no, we, we, we just sort of contract ourselves and we refuse to move in time. We want to possess more and more or enough to feel that we are slightly eternal in what isn't eternal. We go, we go to this enigma, I will grasp onto what is not eternal about myself and fight. And then I'll show everybody. And so it becomes a kind of a foolishness and we try to hold on to it as desperately as we can and then accumulate many things for what purposes sometimes we give them away or we are gracious to spouses siblings parents children but many times we account our power on the earth by what we own so when we die it's just all gone but we go look at who I am look what I have instead of here we are isn't it such a day? People go, well, who are you? You go, we're just here in this day. Who are you? And they're like, I don't know. But I have a lot of things. 
<laughs> and they're much more powerful than anything you'll ever have. I go, I'll bet they are. <laughs> you know, did you see Amy's flowers? Did you see Joseph's birds? They're like, well, I could buy this whole, you know, part of the state. I go, well, then what would you do with it? You know, I would flee from death. I go, I, I can see that. I, we still haven't met. I'm so unhappy to not meet you yet. Let's go walk in the flowers. And the person would think, nobody makes fun of me. You know, huff and puff and blow your house down. I go, I'll just walk in the meadow if you blow my house down. There comes to be a part of you in eternity that's not for sale in the marketplace. Can't be traded. Doesn't belong to anyone. They can't break your heart on that level. Because it's not temporal. What is it? Well, you know, I'll have people ask me, what happens if I die? Do I go on forever and ever? And I'll go, I, you'll have to see. You know, you'll have to see that people will want a mental answer. How eternal is the part of me that is not eternal? My body, my mind, my personality, how far out I can reach with that. And so this in this area, you have to be with the humility of the mystery. And yet, you are a dewdrop in the ocean. You do go out a long ways. You go a long ways into the past. Is it eternal? What does that mean? But you can trust that you exist in a longevity of holiness. Not you holy, but of that holiness. Why would you not want to live that? From the past, into the present, into the future. So, if you focus on time to some extent, rather than just space, you start to have a direction where this quality of what Mary was speaking of is comforting and comfortable. Whatever my son says to do, whatever my son says or is or embodies, please enact or do. So she calls time forward. It's, it's time, and he says, woman, it is not yet my time, and yet it is somehow answered through him. The wisdom of the mother knowing the son, and yet him saying, not quite yet. They were communicating intimately what she knew and maybe what he knew about himself. Yes, mother, I'm here, but not quite mature. I, I don't, I mean, we can't say what he meant, but there is a conversation of intimacy between them. It isn't her saying one thing or him saying one thing. It's, it's, a, it's a conversation of love between a mother and a son. So in you, what is that conversation? How are you to embody in the next moment, in the next afternoon, the next day, the quality of that which is holy you are to represent? And then we go toward the future, not the past. Okay, so if the past is our telling of warfare, it tells us, it's trying to tell us how to safely negotiate your genes going forward in time, no matter how they're attacked. And then Napoleon did this. The Iroquois did that. I hope he did this. The Navajo encroaching did that. I, I've told this story many times of um, people <clears throat> in the Pueblo regions of the Southwest and how they would deal with the Comanche when they would come in from the Great Plains and the Comanche were very wild and very free, but very uh, defiantly um, brutal. And uh, they would often maim people. They would um, kidnap to raise little children. And 
there would be a kind of enjoyment of harm. And so they've been eradicated. Even the other tribes all through the Midwest and the Southwest tried to get rid of them because they were, they were desolately violent for no reason. They would just be violent. But they, they did that causing them to prevail for a long time because they would be more brutal than anybody else. And then they were gone. They're gone. Everyone else killed them off. No one could stand the violence. It was too much. When a four-year-old girl would be kidnapped from a prairie homestead or another tribe, like the Taos Pueblo, and she would be brought into the marketplace to show off on a trading day with no nose and two fingers cut off, people would think, this is not harmonious with the universe. So I've never talked to one tribal leader who accepted the violence of the Comanche. It was too much. It was out of balance. So even in the study of warfare, there became qualities that were too irreverent of life itself. Right? So, But when we study history, we still study the Greeks did this and the Romans did this, or moving into the current era, in this race, we have tended to do this to this race, which has tended to do this to that race. And then violence will spew out. A woman in San Francisco who's almost 80 will be beaten almost to her death in the middle of a very elegant area of the city. And then every Asian person I see has a quality of stepping back slightly or a look on their face of, am I safe with you? And I've just watched this for the last year. Hmm, well, now we've spilled over into this. This hatred against that hatred. And then we have miniature hatreds of one tribe against another. Or one tribe in Vietnam against another person. So someone will not want their daughter in Huey to marry a man who's from Hanoi because they're from different tribes. One is more... Chinese based in language and food and culture and one is more based in the, the lower Mekong Delta and the food is different and the language is slightly different and so if we said you're racist, you're horrible you go well the mother knows the daughter will miss the food the grandchildren will be raised with different qualities and these tribes used to tend to kill each other rather than marrying each other so what should the two young people do? So when we only turn to the past, we always find that we look down on someone, we judge someone, they're wrong, so that our cells will survive beyond theirs. Right? I want space to survive in me more than it does in you. I need to dominate you so that I go on over you, further than you. And then we're, we're dissonant, we're not happy, there's not a harmony of the human beings. So we have rare people who come forward and will say, we're all one, we work in unity. I was speaking with someone earlier, Martin Luther King's The Beloved Community. And then people will say, well, the beloved community doesn't include anybody who's not black. I go, I, I don't really feel that way. Well, it's true. We at least have something we have to have for ourselves. I, I talked to a woman about two years ago who said this. I go, well, you could feel that way if you want. She goes, well, I want you to belong to the beloved community, but, but it doesn't really belong to you. I said, well, I, I think it kind of, he meant it to belong to everyone, but I don't know, I'm not him. And then I said, you know, the day he gave the talk 
at the Washington Monument, there were people from all over the place who were there. And they, they didn't really know that. I said, yeah, if you look, if you look back at the footage, there were, there were people, I know somebody who was there. It's like there were all kinds of people who were there. And they, they didn't know where to go because for her, her own heritage as an African-American woman had not been given enough value in her own family, in her education, in how she felt she'd been treated. And so her view is, well, you're entitled, you know, you're white. I said, I have worked at jobs that were, and then I started talking to her about things I'd done. You did? Why didn't you just get a better job when you were 14, you know, than the country store? Right? I said, well, there, there wasn't something else you could do when you were 14. No one was allowed to hire you, you know. And she, she didn't know that. Was she racist? Was I racist? Or did we not know how to meet through the variations of the history of humanity? And then we found a, a way of meeting of what she had not known historically as we went to the present into the future. Right, that's the beloved community. How do we do this together? So Dr. King and all the people with him of many races worked in some way and yet we killed them. When he came out of that cave, the people in the cave killed him. Right? So we're at a time now when that is intending to happen. And one of the things I thought this last week is if we talked about, I would talk about one of these reincarnate children being born at a big, at a huge talk of like 6,000 people in Brazil. And, and then I'd be very quiet about it for about eight months. And somebody would go, why don't you write a book? Why don't you go on TV? And I go, oh, because I would feel the ebb and flow of how in mankind we'd go, really? Really, that woman is going to be the secretary for that person. My, my grandmother, my dad's mom, was the secretary for the president at Corning Glass for a time. And, and people, they, they used to have like a male attendant at certain jobs. Like the man would oversee the president. So when they chose my grandmother, and it was Anna, Anna Marguerite Harhin, uh, people were kind of astonished. Why would they choose a woman? Well, she was a very good friend of his, and his view was because she has a lot of understanding of me. He was safe with her. But when I was a girl, she talked to me about how she was treated in a job unlike a job a woman would be given. It wasn't a normal secretary's job. It was more the manager beside him. And then she'd talk to me about these things, Betsy, this way and that way. And I would realize, a oh, grandma knows how to walk through this world without a mask about that aspect dealing with women and men. So I was never afraid of men. Why? Because as a tiny girl, she would just take me with her. And I got to be with a woman who was unafraid of men. How did that happen to her? She had an amazing father and mother. But that part that we're taught to be afraid of in men, she was not afraid of it. I thought, I, I thought every woman had that. And then I'd see, wow, women just don't know that they don't need to be afraid of this. They just don't know that. How do they not know that? But she didn't just know it, she came out of a cave with it. Right? She, she knew that she had to have that courage. She understood what her ancestors had fled from warfare to try to live as what we call freedom. 
Okay, so when you go forward in time, there's a quality of something happening from the present into the future that we've never done before. We've never met where we allowed each other to become enlightened or fully present or beyond a judgment of theologies. And when we do, what happens between us is a similar principle to that which happened with Mary and Jesus. Okay, so if I'm uh, in nature at home, I, I live in Texas, which is a very interesting experience for me, both beautiful and challenging. It's an area that is very intense and very determined for the world to go forward, and yet it sort of goes into a very conservative stance of that. But when I moved to Texas, I had an experience of the ancestors of all of Texas welcoming me. I've never had an experience like it in my life. I had to go and lie down. And I almost couldn't believe it because I thought of Texas as a very reactive place. And I knew that we were going to go through a hard time. I, I knew George Bush W., the younger Bush, would be president for eight years. And friends laughed and said, there's no way, there's no way that man doesn't know enough. He doesn't have the history. I go, no, he's going to be president for eight years. The country's going to go through a very hard time and be attacked. And I have to go right into the middle of it, right into the state he's from and live there. And I cried. I lived a beautiful life out in the California desert. I travel a lot with work, and so I went... But I knew that this meeting that we're speaking of was, was we were pregnant with it in the human race. It was so tangible to me. And I knew you need to do this. And then the ancestors of Texas from every walk of life were there and stood with me. Interesting. Who would think? Right? Maybe because their life was so severe. Like if you eat barbecue, it's not because they grew resplendent gardens. It's because the only things they could grow in some of the areas would be uh, animals and then smoke them, onions, cucumbers for pickles, maybe some potatoes, maybe not, hard beans, pinto beans. That's it. So somebody will sit down with a traditional Texas barbecue meal there wasn't any other food. Maybe if you fish in the creek, if the beans didn't work, there weren't any till the next year. You got hard beans from somebody coming from Kansas and traded the only calico fabric you had for a new dress for your sister. Well, we'll give up the fabric for the dress because we need the beans. So <clears throat> this last period of about 14 years Humanity was at this point, shall we have a great war? Boy, it'd be a lot of fun. It'd be the greatest reality TV program in history. You know, we would be just drunk on our own drama. And it was like a boat where the, the mainsail's standing in the huge storm, but the, the sails are flapping and people are exhausted trying to sail it. Will we make it through the storm or will we collapse and go into the war? So part of what occurred historically, and this is the next area I want us to go into, I'll, I'll come back to time, because I want to do a lot with this idea of the future. <clears throat> what happened historically is we would come into this uh, concept that we were going to fall apart because we have the free will to do it if we feel like it. So in a lot of young people, there's been a, a propensity to 
I have what I call the tantrum. You know, I could do this if I want, or I don't really have to grow up fully if I don't want to. And I'll watch a 75-year-old grandfather doing something, and the grandson won't help him at all. And I'll love the grandson. He'll be a really neat guy, and I'll go, why don't you help your grandpa? I don't feel like it. I go, it's 90 degrees. Do you really think he should be doing that? Well, he's okay. And I'll think, what are the two of them doing? And the grandson, in a manner of speaking, is unconsciously willing to have the world war. Or part of him is sort of soporific, half asleep, trying to stand with his grandfather, but too tired to get up to help the grandfather because the grandson's trying to prevent the world war. So I'll turn to the grandfather, do you need him to help you? Yeah, I do, but you know, he doesn't want to. I'll go, well, go help your grandpa. That feminine part will go, the grandfather needs him and he's just tired of asking him. And I'll bring in that feminine quality. Go help your grandpa. Oh my God, Beth, you would do that. I go, I would do that, yep. And so, or I'll watch it and the grandfather will say, no, I'm good. I'm going to actually like a little time to do this myself. And then I'll turn to the grandson and let it be and say, you need to spend more time with him. Not just to help him work, but how else are you going to know the stories of what to do in the future? You're not going to know him. And the grandson will look at me. I'll go, he's not going to be here forever. You need to spend some time with him. And the fear will come up in the grandson of, I don't know what I'm doing. It will be this uh, visceral, cellular fear of, I, I was going to stay a kid. I wasn't going to grow up. So as we move into time now, I think it's imperative that we deal with this historic quality we all most went through, and I, I'm just going to talk about it for a few minutes. Um, I just think it behooves me metaphysically that with some of the things I work with. So all of humanity, when we're here at the same time, we are here for certain purposes that are individual, and we have many collectives we belong to, and then we have a universal principle that occurs globally, whether we're aware of it or not. And now we're at a time when we can communicate globally, so we have the ability to have like an infinity symbol moving through us all across the world. So historically, we didn't always have that, but we were trying to take a formation gradually to form a universal principle among us, which is what we have before we're conceived, and we have that after we die. And then we come down here to study the various principles of what we can each do in our various classrooms. And some of us have more ability than others in various things. Like I would not be a great uh, airplane pilot, or I would not be a great uh, sled dog musher, you know, or I would not be a great submarine person. I, I don't think I could stand to be in a submarine under the ocean in a small container like that. Some people love it. I, I would not be one of them. So somebody else could say, I'm, I'm a captain of a submarine, or I go down and I explore deep sea fish, and they're an expert on the world's deep sea coral, and coral reefs, and they can be down there for days, and they're, they're thrilled by it. And then we all know things about it from photographs and documentaries. And so we move in this ebb and flow of our individual capacities and how we have affinities and aversions of where the the vehicle we are, the, the individual being we are, has those qualities. And when we can support that in one another, we get a tremendous flow of this holy family around the world. 
and then our collectives form as couples and families and little groups, and they flow in uh, areas of expression and creativity and sort of evolutionary understanding, or they're dissonant because one battles another for prowess or power over others, which is part of what we're trying to learn to not do so much. Because we learn from our various collectives, like we do a co-op, and we do a group of farmers who all know how to work together. And then we, we start forming a universal principle where we have the individual and tribes, and yet we are a human race. We, we come into it like a oneness. So what's happened historically is we will have a being come in and another being, and when they have a fight, one of them tends to fall down to try to kill the other one so that the one who wins the fight goes on and the other one doesn't. There's actually a will to say, I live, you don't, or I'm well, you're not. Not we could both be well and hunt together. We we haven't tended to have that be our history of what we study, which is interesting that we never made the connection of just turning that gear. Your your people in physics and mathematics are turning it more quickly than religious people are actually. So which is so interesting to me. Your scientists are actually moving more deeply in that direction than your religious people are. So they maybe just can't contain the brilliance of their star-like personalities and it just kind of comes out of them. But nonetheless, they're the ones studying this idea. They have been for about 100 years. So <clears throat> what happens historically is one tribe learns, if I hate you enough, I might win. So we tend to choose somebody else to be the other. It's not really how we're made. We're not really made in ourselves to have... Uh, a dualistic viewpoint, but we've taught each other that for a long time, and that's become the mental idea of reality. So your mind isn't even dualistic. We just tend to think, I don't, you know, I don't like vanilla. Oh my God, I've never liked vanilla. Why don't you give me vanilla? Well, because your mother liked vanilla. Well, it was my mother, not me. Oh my God, why do we have to fight about ice cream? I don't even want it anymore. You go, I thought we were going out for ice cream. No, no, we have a dualistic fight, and you're dead because I just killed you because you wanted to give me vanilla ice cream because you just don't love me enough, right? And we go, what, what, is the, what is the person doing? And, you know, it's funny, and it's also, you come into a grocery store, and someone goes, I'm not bagging the groceries for you. You go, okay, okay. And, and then you start bagging them. They go, you're using two bags. You're only allowed one. I'm going to charge you a nickel for each one. You're like, okay. And then they're just upset, you know. I'm going to argue because you're going to die, and I'm going to live. That tribe's going to die, my tribe's going to live. And that dualistic agreement, which is actually mathematical, is something we trade on a mental level all around the world. We do a lot of our politics that way. Which party are you? You know, I hate you, I vote this way, not that way. I hate you too, I vote this way, not that way, let's go out for a drink. And then there's this posturing, it's called. So. What happens when we do this is we think, well, whoever does that in the most profound way wins the money and the power and the societal energy. They, they develop a kind of electromagnetic energy. The aura gets very strong and the person feels they're charismatic or they're popular or they're successful. And their energy is actually kind of suppressing the people around them. So it takes a lot of energy to live in that state because they have to live off the world around them 
to try to sustain a state where they are up and they're beating somebody else down. And so, and they think, well, I have to stay in that. I can't go past it because to be a human being is living in that dualistic state, but it isn't. But as soon as you let it go, most of the people who walk by you will go like, well, you're nobody. You think, I know. You, you become, in mathematics, you become a zero. Right? It's a zero-sum game. You're like, yeah, it's just me. You zero. You go, yeah, that's, that's me. I'm a one. Well, I'm a two. No, one, two, one, two. And that's how our computers work. One, two, one, two. So when a child is addicted to their game, they're just really good at developing one, two, one, two, one, two. Yeah, Mom, I'd love macaroni and cheese for dinner. Oh, we're having that again. Okay. Can I play another hour? And so what you want to do with your child is just get him out of the one-two game for a while. Let's just go outside. Let's go fish. I don't want to fish. Okay, let's go hike. And then they start letting go of it, and they can come back into it, but they don't have to use it for dominance over another person or submission to another person. You just go into the zero. It's you. It's me. It's grandson. It's, it's Nene. It's you. It's me. It's our marriage. I love you so much. And then you realize, oh, the one-two thing is how we have our history so we could remember how to survive if a Comanche came to maim our child. What would we do with them? I don't know what we'd do with them. There aren't any of them left to ask. They didn't survive to come into this chapter with us. There are descendants of people who are partly Comanche. You know, it's like a partial, they, they would have been married to a Kiowa person and, and their great-grandchildren are like an eighth, an eighth Comanche. Yeah, <clears throat> I know a family who's part Comanche. It's very evident. They'll be fine and then they'll start fighting. Then they'll be fine and then they'll start this, like they, they can't help themselves. It's, it's very interesting to be around them. And that they've found a very magnificent way to work through their work and their service they do for people and they're, they're just really fascinating.